Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Faith McQuinn, and this is Epic, Born to the Blade, Episode 2. Enjoy! Chapter 1, Michiko Bellona's sword whipped around and caught Michiko a stinging slap on the forearm, nearly making her drop her own blade. You see, Bellona said, retreating out of reach, your simple blade work is out of practice. You don't want to be like Takeshi, do you? His craft is beautiful, even I have to admit it, but ask him to carve sigils while actually fighting, and he's almost useless. Would you have been able to capture the Golden Lord if Lavinia hadn't been with you? Michiko's breath caught. She shook out her fingers and bowed her head to conceal the reaction. I would have done my best, she said. That much, at least, she could be sincere about. It wasn't until after his execution that she'd discovered he was her grandfather, along with all the other things his spirit had claimed were true. It's a pity I wasn't there, Bologna mused. She returned her practice blade to the rack and began stripping off her padded armor, shaking out her short, sweat-soaked hair. I know he hadn't used a blade in 40 years, so defeating him wouldn't have been an impressive feat of arms, but still, think of the glory. And it would have been so symmetrical. Michiko thought she knew Mertikan idioms inside and out, but if symmetrical was slang for anything, she hadn't heard it before. What do you mean? Bologna's smile was toothy. With my previous life. What would it be like remembering past lives? Feeling the weight not only of your ancestors' expectations, but your own past examples. Whether you remembered success or failure, the weight of it would drag you down. She preferred having her memories fade in between lives. If only a certain ancestor would do the same. You should tell her. Mertikin sneered at the Kakutan birthright, seeing ancestor communion as backward-looking, instead of a spur to future accomplishments. Because of that, Michiko kept quiet about her own rituals, especially around true Mertikans like Bologna. But this connection to the Golden Lord, she ought to report it. One glance at Bologna, though, 
Felt her now was not the time. Bologna had drawn herself up to her full height, chin tilted, so she could look down at Michiko. An instant's thought showed Michiko her mistake. What did you do in your past life? She asked dutifully. Bologna nodded in satisfaction. You've heard about the Battle of Daigyo? I was the bladecrafter with the Fourth Cloud Legion. New to my posting, and nobody expected anything of me. But I broke the shield over the enemy command post and used the Eagle's Talon sigil to drag their leader out onto open ground. The Battle of Daigyo, where the Golden Lord's youngest sister Ishihime had blocked the Murtikan advance on the Kakuten capital, until a young Murtikan bladecrafter killed her and the army splintered in panic. Michiko remembered Ishihime's body, encrusted with blood from the fatal wound, because she had demanded to see her sister before the priest began the funeral preparations. Bile rose in Michiko's throat. Not my sister. His. The Golden Lord's. Just like the memory wasn't hers. But the pieces clicked into place. Bellona, she was Aelia Tullus, the bladecrafter who broke the Kakuten resistance at Daegyo. It wasn't the end of the war, but some said it was the moment when the end became inevitable. Michiko had gone rigid, her practice armor only half removed. Clearly disappointed that her tail hadn't gotten the admiration she expected, Bologna peered in annoyance at Michiko. What is wrong with you today? I, I have to go, Michiko stammered. Without even pausing to shed the rest of her armor, she fled. Chapter 2. Oju. Once more, the flags flew and the attendants stood in uniformed ranks at the docks, waiting to welcome another new arrival. This time, however, the warder at Ojo's side was not Kinsuke, but Penelope, splendid in a long gown of Vanian blue. She raised one calloused hand to shade her eyes, watching the white-winged Ibis approach. Toife was passing below a scattering of minor islands too small for habitation, and the light kept shifting as the city drifted in and out of shadow. You said that you know this young man? she asked. Ojo nodded, tipping his face up to the sun. We even come from the same town. Our families have been friends for more than a generation. He hadn't expected when the bright chamber reassigned his previous junior warder to Tsukisen that they would send him someone familiar as a replacement. With any luck, a dedicate might even do well enough to stay on in Toife and become Ojo's eventual successor. You're getting ahead of yourself. I haven't seen him since he was a youth, though, Ojo added as much to himself as to Penelope. Not since my last visit to Kolo. He meant the words to be neutral, but Penelope knew him too well. It's difficult being away from home for so long. True, but at the same time, he would miss Toife when the time came for him to retire. He had built so much of his life here, at Penelope, Shun's tea house, playing stone chase with Yokno. We'll have to get a dedicate to share all the news. Chikosi only gives me dull political reports, not the things I want to hear. Like who the Kura champion is this year, or whether my niece's goats have succeeded in eating the entire herb garden, the way my brother keeps predicting they will. Someday, Penelope said with a smile, you will have to teach me how to play, Kura. Ojo laughed. Oh, no, a battle mistress like you. You'll trash me, and a Dejike will write home about it, and I'll never be able to show my face in Kulo again, with everyone knowing Ivanian beat me at our national sport. 
Whatever Penelope might have said to that was drowned in the blare of trumpets as the white-wing ibis floated into position alongside the dock. Waiting at the rail was a broad-faced young man who broke into a dazzling smile when he saw Ojo standing below. He had grown at least a foot since their last encounter, but lost none of the easy charm the gods had blessed him with. No sooner had the gangplank settled into place and he bounded down it, the loose corner of his green and gold wrap fluttering in the wind. But he received Yokno's formal greeting without a hint of impatience, thanking the seneschal with a kiss to each cheek, and only when that was done did he turn to Ojo. Uncle, you're looking well. And you're a liar, Ojo said, amused. I've aged a century since you saw me last, and I know it. You ought to be calling me grandfather instead. Penelope, this flatterer, is a decike ekutu. A decike, Penelope Kirkos. If you ask a Tuan scholar to tell you what a Vanian battle mistress is, they'll simply point you in her direction. A decike laughed and they kissed cheeks. Come, Ojo said when this was done. Official business will start soon enough, but before we get to that, I thought the three of us might have lunch together. There's an excellent Kuloi restaurant on the Middle Island that I frequent when I get homesick. Don't tell your mother, but their matoke is even better than hers. Or would you prefer something different for your first meal here? What is Vanian food like? Adejike asked Penelope. Haven't you heard? She said dryly. We eat Mertikens for breakfast and their blades for lunch. Adejike stared at her for a moment, dumbfounded. Then a peal of laughter burst from him and the three of them headed for one of Toife's lips. The staff at the restaurant knew Ojo well enough that he didn't even have to order. Even as they sat down, a waiter delivered a tray of tea. A dedicate beat him to the pot and began pouring for his elders. So, fill me in on the news. What did I miss while I was the sky? The question dimmed Ojo's good mood like an island passing between him and the sun. Penelope said bluntly, The Golden Lord is dead. A dedicate almost overfilled his own teacup. Ojo wouldn't have led with that news. He didn't want to cast a pall over Adejike's first day on Toife with such unpleasant matters. But he would have found out soon enough, and so Ojo told the story, confining himself to the basic details. And he made sure to reference Chris, knowing that would catch Adejike's attention. The ploy worked. Are they the bladecrafter challenging to become the first Rumika and warder? Adejike asked. At Ojo's nod, he said, I'd like to meet them. Do you think they stand a chance? They have quite a reputation as a blade crafter, Ojo said. The waiter returned, this time bearing blocks of boiled cornmeal and clay pots of various stews to ladle over them. Monarchs attacked their ship on the way here, and if the sailors are to be believed, Chris slew one all on their own. Penelope frowned. If I attend the sky is one thing, dueling to become a warder is quite another. I have yet to see a monarch as formidable as Lavinia. Mertika's senior warder was a mist fiend, not a monarch. A savage force capable of destroying entire ships and almost impossible to defeat. Ojo said, The gauntlet is as much about politics as dueling, and Chris doesn't need Lavinia's support to get a seat on the council. I won't go easy on them, Penelope warned him. Of course she wouldn't. Vanians were no more inclined than Mertikans to do less than their best, and although Penelope was more open-minded than many of her fellow countrywomen, he knew she found Rumikin ways unsettling. On Vania, women and men had very separate and well-defined roles. They didn't require a person's gender to match their body, but they did require it to stay put. Shifting as the Rumikan birthright allowed was a challenge to the entire structure of Vanian society. 
and educate Doug into his meal with enthusiasm. Ojo hadn't been a sky for quite some time, but he remembered shipboard meals being less than satisfying. At least Adejike had the manners to swallow before he asked, If they become a warder, what will that mean? Then his gaze slid to Penelope. Unless, uh, I'm sorry, is it all right to talk politics like this? Vanya's no more a friend to Martika than Kulo is, Ojo said. That was a bit of a stretch. Vanya had so far remained relatively neutral, not committing to either alliance or opposition. But he knew Penelope's mind inside and out. I'm hoping for friendship with Rumika, of course. Uh, together we would be more than strong enough to resist the Imperials, and trade with Rumika would be of great advantage to us. The arrival of the Matuke gave him a good reason to break off. This wasn't the autumn leaf where he could be assured of discretion, and the steamed mashed bananas were an excellent diversion. Discussing trade would mean discussing Aristone, and there was no need to weigh a educate down with Chikozi's ominous predictions. Not yet. And if Ojo's hopes came to pass, not ever. But come, he said, serving a dejike a heaping mound of matoke. There will be time enough for politics later. Tell me instead of home. Chapter 3 Chris Chris took the steps leading up to the council, two and three at a time, as if a sigil were powering their legs. During the journey to Toifei, they had imagined the process of becoming the first Rumikan warder. In those dreams, it began the day after their arrival and ended, at most, a couple of days after that. Even Chris wasn't quite so confident as to think they could fight six duels in a day and come out the other side intact. But everyone knew what they'd come for, so why wait? The reality was more than a little different. Chris couldn't even begin the process of challenge until they'd had a chance to meet with Yokno, and the Seneschal was a difficult man to get hold of. His secretaries claimed it was because of this business with the Golden Lord's capture and execution. That memory still turned Chris's stomach. Not what the Mertikans had done, that was no surprise. But Michiko and Kansuke just stood there and let it happen. They hadn't even tried to defend the prisoner. They'd left that to Ojo and Taro like it didn't matter. Chris refused to think about it too much, at least for today. Yokno had finally invited Chris to visit the council, which meant things were about to move forward at last. They arrived outside Yokno's door only a little out of breath, and that mostly from excitement. The secretary who received Chris did not look excited at all. Please have a seat, the man said, but Chris was too impatient to sit. They paced, tail skirt flicking each time they pivoted to retrace their steps, until after an excruciating interval, Yokno emerged. Ah, Seruden. I apologize for keeping you waiting. Will you walk with me? I can show you the council grounds while we talk. I'd happily fight a duel while we talk if it meant I could get started, Chris said fervently. Yokno bowed them toward the door. The Seneschal's offices were in a separate building from the main chambers, with an expanse of garden in between. Some of the plants were familiar, like hibiscus and stained glass palms, but others clearly came from the cooler climates of lower islands. Chris gestured at the beds and said, Neutrality and harmony, even in your landscaping, huh? I wonder how the gardeners keep them all thriving together. They grinned. There's probably a metaphor in that. I was under the impression you had come here to discuss the water circle, and not the gardens. Yokno didn't wait for a reply before continuing. It has been many years since a new water was added to the council, long before my time, of course. 
Chris had gotten an earful back on Rumika when the contests began to pick the blade crafter their people would send as their representative. That was Vanya, right? Did you have to order in a new table to make room for the extra sword? Yokno's lips tightened slightly. I have spent the last several days reviewing the procedures. Uh, the addition of a new warder requires majority support from the existing circle, which formerly meant three of five. As there are now six warders with the addition of Anya, you will need four to gain your seat. Four out of six. Got it. I am very good at basic arithmetic. The man had no sense of humor. Support may take two forms. One is that the warder may speak up in your favor when it comes time to vote. The other... The other is that I beat them outright in a bladecraft duel. Chris began ticking off the current warders on their fingers. From what I hear, the Ikaran guy is better at craft than blade, so he shouldn't be a problem. The Kakutan warder is past his prime. Ojo, sorry, warder Kante already likes me, so I know I've got his support. That means I just need to beat one more warder and I'm in. Holding up six fingers, they grinned and waggled the set. But I'm aiming for all six. It was pure bravado. They'd seen Lavinia fight. They'd seen her take down Taro and Ojo together. Still, everyone had a weakness. Chris just needed to find hers. Yokno didn't respond to bravado any more than he did to jokes. You do realize that if your challenge fails, it may be as long as a decade before Rumika is permitted to try again. Chris's feeling of good humor dimmed as if the mists had risen from the depths to shroud it. Seneschal, they said coolly, you may think my sense of humor is inappropriate, but don't let it fool you into thinking I came here on a lark. I know the stakes, and I aim to win. This got no more reaction than the jokes had. Then may luck favor you in that goal, Yokno said. Now, let me tell you about the gauntlet rituals. This episode of Epic is brought to you by Wild Grain. I want you to take a moment and imagine the smell of fresh baked sourdough bread filling your house. Or maybe it's croissants, if that's more to your liking. Now, what if I told you that you could get this delicious experience without covering yourself in flour and without leaving your house? Well, you can if you order from Wild Grain. What's Wild Grain? Well, it is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box. You get sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and pastries that go from your freezer to your oven and ready to serve in 25 minutes or less. I just got my first box and it had three different sourdough loaves, biscuits, croissants, and two different kinds of pasta. I made the orange cranberry biscuits right away and I cannot tell you how wonderful my house smelled and they tasted even better. Scallops and Wild Grains Fresh Fettuccine is on the menu for this week and I plan to pair it with the olive oil ciabatta loaf. <sighs> Doesn't that sound so good? If you're a carb lover like me and you want good carbs free of preservatives and artificial colors and flavors, then you'll want to get a subscription right away. And now you can fully customize your Wild Grain box so you can choose any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com epic to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com epic. 
That's wildgrain.com slash E-P-I-C. Or you can use promo code EPIC at checkout. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 4, Michiko. When Michiko returned to the Kakutan embassy after her morning run, she found a message waiting from Bologna, summoning her to the Mertican embassy. She should have felt pleased. Bologna's summons was evidence that the Mertican saw value in her skills. Those who failed to impress them simply got ignored until the first opportunity to replace them with someone more effective. But it grated that Bologna didn't come to the Kakutan embassy. She just sent a messenger and a note saying, I have a task for you. A month ago, it wouldn't have bothered her, and that bothered her, too. Michiko stopped in the street outside the immaculate geometrical gardens of the embassy and tugged her Mertican-style tunic straight and pinned her drape in more precise folds at her shoulder, as if that would clear her thoughts of the Golden Lord. Her divided instincts could agree on this much, at least. Walking in with her inner conflict so clear on her face was a bad idea. It was a good thing she'd taken that moment, because Bologna began talking before the reception room door had even closed behind Michiko. There you are. I don't know about you, but I am tired of waiting. Her posture announced that impatience as much as her words did, but Michiko had no clue as to the cause. Waiting for what? For my chance. Bologna began to pace, hands locked behind her back in military fashion. Lavinia thinks I ought to be satisfied with what I have right now. She even said it to me the other day. After a few lifetimes at this level, maybe you'll be ready to move on. But I don't intend to wait lifetimes. I got where I am right now because I achieved great things at my previous incarnation, and I don't see any reason why I shouldn't do the same thing again this time. So, Michiko was to be a tool in Bologna's grand plan. Part of her welcomed the certainty that brought, while the rest of her chafed. What do you have in mind? Two things. You will see my end of it soon enough. For your part, have you spent much time with Ojo Kante? A little, Michiko said cautiously. He's been very helpful in orienting me around Toifei, but I didn't want to upset Lavinia by becoming too friendly with him. Bologna sniffed, as if any Mertican would need the help of a man whose island is sinking because of his people's mistakes. No, you were quite right. What about Kristen? So, now I count as a Mertican. Bologna was a true Mertican, native to the island that formed the core of the empire. The rest of them only counted when true Merticans wanted them to. What do you actually want to know? The bluntness pulled Bologna up short. After a moment, though, her stiff posture relaxed. Quite right, let's not waste time. I've heard that Ojo is cozying up to that Rumican upstart. 
I thought he would wait until after the gauntlet. What use is there in trying to court someone who might not even have a seat at the table? But we can't let those two become allies. And then I remember that you got to know Chris on the journey here. I want you to go to them and find out what's happening with them in Kulo. And if it is an alliance, I want you to warn them off. An alliance would make sense. When Kulo stopped mining airstone to protect their island, it had limited the power of their fleet. If they started importing more from Rumika, they would once again pose the single biggest threat to Murtika in the sky. Warned them off how? Polona stared at her, annoyed. I don't know, she said, biting each word off. Figuring that out is your job, not mine. Now get moving, I have my own work to do. Finding Chris wasn't difficult. If they weren't in the visitors' quarters, there was only one other likely place. Even though Ojo had invited her to visit the Kuloi embassy at any time, she half expected the staff to tell her that Warder Kante was occupied and she should leave a note for him. After all, if he was planning an alliance with Rumika, he wouldn't want a Mertikan subject poking around. But to her surprise, one of the clerks escorted her immediately to the practice ground, where Ojo was training his new junior. Michiko got just inside the threshold and stopped, so abruptly that the door swung into her back and sent her lurching another step forward. Yes, Ojo was overseeing Adejike's training against Chris. The Rumikan was floating around Adejike, each step gliding a short distance above the ground before touching down again. Judging by Chris's grin, they'd done that as a deliberate, taunting response to Adejike's rooted stance. Adejike didn't seem bothered, though. He simply pivoted as Chris circled, matched Kuloi blades held at the ready. You know I'll be on you the moment you try to draw a sigil, Chris said. Adejike shrugged. I'll wait. Your airstone stance can't last forever. Nope, Chris agreed cheerfully. Which is why I'm gonna do this. They kicked off hard from the ground, flying high enough to arc up over Adejike's head. You shouldn't have warned him, Michiko thought as Adejike lunged forward, not to hit Chris, but to dodge the threat now soaring overhead. It bought him enough time to draw a sigil Michiko didn't recognize. Then Chris was on the ground again, their previous sigil exhausted, and Adejike waded in, twin blades whirling. Either it had been a sigil of speed, or he was faster than his stocky frame would suggest. But Chris was faster. Their style was more island-derived than anything else, but far more mobile than Michika was used to seeing, borrowing some of the footwork from the true way favored in Murtika. They surged in and out of Adejike's reach, and it was clear that Chris's unpredictable movements were dominating Adejike's timing, as they scored touch after touch on their opponent. If this had been a real duel, Chris would have ended it a dozen times already. Michika was so occupied trying to work out how Chris blended those two styles that she missed the moment the tempo of the bow changed. One moment, Chris was dancing in and out of measure, fending off a Dejike's two blades with their one. The next, they were sprawled on the floor. Her heart thudded painfully in her chest. Chris was supposed to become the new Rumikan warder. They would have to duel all the senior warders for the position and Chris had just been defeated by Ojo's junior. A crow of laughter echoed from the room's high ceiling. That was amazing, Chris said. They kipped up in one acrobatic spring. Ojo's the only bladecrafter I've seen with enough focus to do that, carving a sigil with one hand while attacking with the other. Ojo taught me, Adejike said with a wide smile at his senior. Ojo looked proud enough to burst. It's useful, isn't it? Your opponent thinks you're too busy to try anything. And then wham, you yank their feet right out from under them. What was that, the, the hawk's claw, or whatever you call it in Kulu? Would you show me again? 
Michiko's knees felt like they were going to give out. She braced herself against the railing that edged the walkway around the room's top rim while Adejike obligingly repeated his feet, dumping Chris a second time. How could they stand the humiliation? But it was obvious Chris didn't see their defeat as humiliation. It was just an opportunity to learn. And Adejike went along without a quibble, talking avidly about the Kuloi style while Ojo noticed Michiko at the top of the room and came up the broad stairs to greet her. Junior Warder Oda, he said, his easy smile fading into solemnity. I haven't had the chance to speak with you since the uh, recent events. I wanted to offer my condolences on the death of the Golden Lord. She drew in a sharp breath. He was an escaped criminal who violated the terms of his surrender. And he was the last independent ruler of Kakute. Who led his nation into disaster. Condolences are not necessary, Warder Kante. Now that Kakute is shed of his weight, we may move forward at last. She'd mouthed those phrases often enough lately that they came out without a hitch. But inwardly, she still flinched at demeaning her ancestors, even the ancestors she hadn't known about until after he died. This is why Murti can sneer at our birthright. I should not be beholden to the dead. Ojo frowned, but before he could say anything, Adechike and Chris joined them on the walkway, sweat-soaked and laughing. You should try fighting this guy, Michiko, Chris said. Warder Kante, if you're the one who taught him how to do that, I really need to watch out for you in the gauntlet. Ojo clapped them on the back, looking indulgent. Oh, I don't think there's anything to worry about there. Would you like to use the bouts here, rather than walking all the way back to your quarters? Uh, Junior Warder Oda, my apologies. Chris and I have made an appointment for lunch. But I can spare you some time this afternoon, if you'd like. Of course, he'd assumed she came to the embassy for him. Michiko had prepared an excuse and scrambled to remember it. No, it's nothing important. I only wanted to ask what incense shop you recommend down on the Middle Island. Uh, for general purposes, Dobris on the Street of Bees. But if you need something for your ancestor rituals, I'd suggest Ryojiku. His expression remained pleasant, but he was watching her closely. Michiko smiled at him. Now this is just to sweeten the air. I will visit Dobris. Thank you. Chapter 5. Chris. Welcome to the Autumn Leaf, Ojo said, sweeping his arms wide. Chris inhaled deeply, enjoying the rich mix of tea and pipe smoke. The room was unlike anything they knew from Rumika, with round common tables set low to the ground instead of long trestles with benches on either side. The layered carpets almost vanished beneath the patrons and the cushions they leaned on. Some of those people were dressed in the straight-legged trousers of Ikaro or long Hiroki coats, but quite a lot of them wore the eclectic mix that passed for Tuan fashion. It had the feel of a favorite local haunt. I have barely left the top island since I arrived, they admitted. Thanks for bringing me here. Thank me after you've sampled their tea. But first, you have to meet Shun. Ojo led Chris to a counter on the far side of the room, which guarded a wall full of labeled tins. Chris hadn't realized so many varieties of tea existed in all the sky. Ojo! Someone swept into view, middle-aged, with bold eye makeup and the jeweled hairpins Chris had seen on Tuan noblewomen. But a shadow of unshaven beard challenged that image. Chris grinned in pleasant surprise. They weren't Rubicon and weren't playing with gender in the same way a Rubicon would. But it made Chris feel at home anyway. 
After greeting the newcomer with cheek kisses, Ojo said, Chris, I'd like you to meet Shun, owner of this place and the greatest tea master in all of Toifei. Shun, I would introduce Chris, but why pretend you don't already know who they are? All of Tuafe is talking about you, Saruden, Shun said, making an elegant movement that somehow suggested both a bow and a curtsy. Especially after word spread about the monarch attack. I don't suppose you could oblige me by publicly losing a duel or two? I want more lucrative odds before I place my bet on you passing the gauntlet. Startled, Chris said, I thought Tuafe and its people were neutral. Shun's laugh was an arpeggio through their full range. Officially neutral, yes. But you'll find that people here take a very active interest in the doings of the council. They turned to Ojo without missing a bead and said, I imagine you'll want a private booth today? If there's one available. For you always. Follow me. Shun passed long enough to collect a tin from a high shelf, then led them past a large open-sided chamber to a room divided into smaller alcoves. Chris and Ojo settled onto the cushions in one of those alcoves while Shun opened the tin, releasing a beautifully spicy aroma. This is Ojo's favorite tea. If you like it as well, I'll make sure to have more of it brought up from the stores for the party. Party? Chris looked to Ojo for clarification, but he only shook his head. Shun laid one finger over their painted lips, smiling faintly. Oh, of course you won't have received your invitation yet. Please forget I said anything. Your server will be here soon. And then they were gone, drawing the curtain shut behind them. Ojo grinned. Shun does that. Sometimes I think there isn't a single piece of gossip that doesn't reach their ears. Or at least they'd like you to think so. But don't worry about speaking freely, so long as you're in a private booth. Shun and their people will protect your secrets. And you believe that? Chris asked skeptically. Without question. I've known Shun for years, and they've never betrayed my trust. If you need a message passed discreetly, or someone found, or an unofficial bodyguard for yourself or another person, this is the place to come. The curtain parted to admit a server with a pot of hot water and two teacups. He began preparing the tea, and as if to drive home his point, Ojo went on talking. Once you've passed the gauntlet, I think you'll find the autumn leaf a very useful home. Lavinia and the other Matikans know about it, of course, and you'll see them here from time to time, but they're too arrogant to truly understand the value of this place. And that will give you opportunities. The server left. I appreciate the confidence, Chris said, reaching for the tea. Ojo stopped them with a raised hand. It let it steep a moment longer. I'm confident because I'm going to do everything I can to help you join the council. Rumika should have had a seat ages ago. And with your recent airstone successes, you're becoming quite a power in the sky. I mean to win my seat fair and square, Chris warned him. I don't intend anything else. But political negotiation is part of the game. And I've been on Toife long enough to know the currents. I, you can try the tea now. It tasted as good as it smelled, with a complex flavor that bloomed on Chris's tongue. <laughs> this is amazing. Ojo sipped his own tea. I'm not going to pretend I'm as neutral as Toife, Chris. I think that friendship between Rumika and Kulo is exactly what we all need to keep Murtika in check, and that will work best if you're on the council. With your airstone and our trading fleet, we'll be too strong for them to threaten either of us. The possibilities made Chris dizzy. 
They'd known when they entered the first preliminary contest back on Rumika that being a warder would involve more than just fighting duels. They would be Rumika's representative to the world with a chance to shape the future. But they'd never expected it would start this early with another warder. No, just a warder. You're not one yourself yet. Sitting across the table proposing alliance. Another server arrived with food, steaming buns and piles of noodles and things Kristen recognized. Ojo thanked her and arrayed the dishes while Chris thought. Finally, they said, What do you have in mind? Ojo grinned again. I'm Kuloi, aren't I? Let's talk trade. Chapter 6 Ojo. Toife always cooled off in the evening, regardless of how warm it had been during the day. Ojo stretched luxuriously, marveling once again at the softness of Penelope's bedsheets. His subconscious always expected her to sleep on burlap or something else suitable to a battle mistress's austerity. But even the most disciplined of battle mistresses did not turn away from pleasure, as he well knew. How do you think the younger ones will fare tonight? He asked Penelope as he relaxed. By his calculation, Bellona's welcome party for the new juniors had started a little while ago. Sweat had glued strands of Penelope's hair to her forehead. She brushed at them with a lazy swipe of her hand. I expect Cassia is wondering why she bothered to attend. Uh, Takeshi is discussing airstone theory with someone, or if he's found no takers, wondering why he bothered to attend. Your Adechike will make friends with all of them before he finishes his first cup of wine. Except Bologna, maybe. If anyone could charm her, Penelope said, he could. The words were flattering but stiff. Ojo propped himself up on one elbow to look at her. What is it? She glanced away, picking the last few strands of hair from her face. Nothing. I imagine you were much like him when you were younger. Not nearly so appealing, I fear. He's been shamelessly exploiting that smile of his since he was a fat-cheeked toddler. But I appreciate the compliment. To Avanian's way of thinking, men were instinctively violent creatures who needed to be sheltered from their own worst impulses. Charming wasn't a word they normally applied to his gender. Something still occupied her. Ojo waited, giving her time to gather herself. Then, without preamble, Penelope said, I'm pregnant. Ojo almost overbalanced. It wasn't actually a surprise. The two of them had discussed this months ago. Penelope and her wife wanted a child and agreed that Ojo would make a good sire. By Vanian standards, that was the highest praise possible, especially for an outsider. But he hadn't realized they had already succeeded. Warmth blossomed inside him. That's wonderful, he said, beaming down at her. Penelope sat up, and he shifted out of her way. I'm about two months along, I think. Uh, but it means I'll be returning to Vania soon. That hit like a splash of cold water. Of course, Penelope would go back to Vania. She wouldn't want her child to be born on Toife, to lack the birthright imparted by Vanian soil, to lack all birthright as citizens of Toife did. An expectant mother's never wanted to risk giving birth a sky. But so soon? She met his gaze squarely. And I doubt I will be back for quite some time. 
He nodded, slowly trying to wrap his mind around it all. How long? At least a year, she hesitated. Possibly more. It was as if someone had torn the ground away, leaving him midair and falling fast. It wasn't a surprise. None of it was a surprise, except the part where he felt like someone had punched him in the gut. He hadn't realized until just now how accustomed he was to these evenings in Penelope's bed. How much he'd grown to enjoy having her on Toifei. Having her in his life. She saw his expression change. I'm not your wife, Ojo, she said, her voice harsh. No, I, I know that. Penelope had a wife already. Ojo had met Semele once, when she came to evaluate him before he and Penelope began their arrangement. He knew he had no claim and would never dream of making one. But still, I just, you've already made your plans, haven't you? Without even talking to him about it beforehand, Penelope got out of bed and began dressing. I've notified Cassia. She will be warder pro tem while I'm gone, so Vania will not be without a representative. I'm sure I can rely on you to support her, as you so often do with the juniors. It was as if his lover had vanished, replaced by the flawless Vanian battlemistress who shared her name. But Ojo couldn't shift mode so easily. That's it? That's all you have to say? She paused, still only half-dressed, her posture so proud it eclipsed her nakedness. My apologies, Ojo. You are right, I should thank you. I said when we formed our arrangement that I believed you would make an excellent sire, and I have the utmost confidence that it will prove to be true. A sire, not a father. He would not be part of the child's family. As far as Penelope was concerned, his role in this play was over. And so, apparently, was everything else. He rose and began dressing mechanically. You're welcome. I hope you have a strong and intelligent daughter. If I'm not here when you return, I'm sure I can rely on you to support the Dejike. Not here, Penelope said, startled. Ojo shrugged. The words tumbled out of him, driven by impulse rather than thought. With Rumika on the rise, uh, perhaps it is time to pass the blade to a younger generation. One more prepared for the changes that lie ahead. And I have been gone from Kulo a long time. I find that I miss my home. A year would be long enough to train Adichike, he hoped. Now it was her turn to nod. I see, and I understand. I miss Vanya, too. She pulled on her shirt, hesitated, and offered him her hand. May the future inherit peace. It was a Kuloi blessing, but a Vanian gesture. He returned her strong grip and gave her a Vanian blessing in return. And may you always find victory. Chapter 7 Michiko Before coming to Toifei, Michiko wouldn't have believed that anyone could carve a sigil with a blade the size of a penknife. Longer steel was more effective at building and channeling the resonances, which was why almost all bladecrafters wielded swords. But the lifts that moved people between the tiered islands of Toifei moved in response to tiny penknives. The lift she boarded was full enough that she wound up standing right next to the operator's enclosure, a small cage designed to protect the inhabitant from the crowd of passengers. It gave her a full view of the process. Michiko was used to thinking of bladecraft as a martial art, dance-like and beautiful. And to this woman, though, it was clearly nothing more than a job, one rendered boring by a thousand repetitions. 
Her movements were perfunctory rather than graceful, and a touch ludicrous given that the blade was no longer than her finger. It shouldn't have been enough to move so large a platform with so many people loaded onto it, but the lifts were one of the artifacts from Toifei's ancient past. That tiny sigil sent the platform gliding downward until another one brought it to a shivering halt. The flood of people carried Michiko off the lift and into the streets of the Middle Island. The noise and crowds here made a sharp contrast with the elegance of the top tier, and even though the scents were all wrong, laden with unfamiliar spices, it reminded her of festivals back home. She found herself relaxing a little as she made her way through the streets to the autumn leaf tea house. That tension all came back as she entered, though. Bellona was already holding court in one of the smaller, open-fronted chambers off the main common room. The teahouse staff had set up half a dozen individual tables with tasseled cushions strewn about so that no one would feel obliged to remain at their place. She was the last to arrive. Bellona had taken up residence on a cushion next to Adechike and was deep in conversation with him, toying with the embroidered edge of her drape. Michiko had expected to find Adechike with Chris, but the Rimikan was sprawled across two cushions near Cassia. That was a disaster waiting to happen. Michiko considered intervening, decided against it, and turned to the final member of the party. Technically, Takeshi belonged here, even less than Cassia. Neither of them were new arrivals. They'd been on Toife for years. And Takeshi was a senior warder, not serving under someone else. But he was also Ikaren a colonial subject, and therefore Bologna naturally saw him as her junior. He didn't seem offended, nor was he alone. One of the tea house's servers was distributing small bowls of soft noodles and some kind of mixed sauce and had stopped at Takeshi's table. Michiko assumed he was ordering something else, but as she drew near, she realized they were just chatting, as if they knew each other. Noting Michiko's approach, the server apologized and excused himself. Mind if I join you? she asked. Not at all, Takeshi said. I hope it wasn't anything bad that kept you. Michiko smiled to cover her discomfort. She'd attempted to commune with her ancestors again, her other ancestors, hoping for guidance, but the Golden Lord's spirit would hardly let them get a word in edgewise. It had left her in worse turmoil than before. Not at all. I'm surprised you came, though. To the junior's party? His dry tone made it clear he saw the message hidden beneath Bologna's friendly invitation. It was unplanned. I come here fairly often and forgot this party was tonight. Once Bologna saw me, it was impossible for him to escape without giving insult. Well, I'm glad you're here, Michiko said. Chris's voice caught her ear before she could continue. So, do you ever get cross-dressers in Vania? They asked Cassia. I don't mean the Ananti, the ones whose bodies don't match their gender. I mean, like, somebody with a male body who doesn't identify as female, but he wants to go to war, so he tells everyone he's Ananti so he can get off the men's island. Or a woman who would rather have a nice, peaceful life farming so she pretends to be an Ananti man. Cassia's expression would have been comical if Michiko hadn't been cringing inside. It was a mix of, I can't believe you just asked me that, and I would give anything not to be having this conversation. A man who wants to go to war would not be permitted to do so, she said stiffly. It's precisely because of those violent instincts that we encourage them to turn their energies in more peaceful directions. But you have Ananti battle mistresses, don't you? How do you decide that this person here is an Ananti woman who can become a brilliant tactician, but that one there is a man who will go berserk and slaughter people if you let him pick up a sword? 
Chris, you have to try these. Adechike had one of the noodle bowls in his hand and a huge grin on his face. They're salty and sweet and peanutty all at once. They're amazing. Michiko didn't blame Cassia for bolting while Chris's attention was elsewhere. Watching Arumikan and Avanian try to discuss gender was like being caught midair in a fangwing swarm. It could only end in blood. Especially when it was obvious that Chris had already drunk a fair bit of the plum wine. They got up and went to join Adechike, tipping the remainder of the noodle bowl directly into their mouth. Oh, that's fabulous! Can we get more of those? They dropped bonelessly into a cross-legged position across from Bologna. Who gave Chris a brittle smile, even as her gaze sought out Michiko? The message in it was clear. Why haven't you done something about this? Stealing herself, Michiko picked up her cup and excused herself from Cassia and Takeshi. There you are, Chris said as she sat down. I didn't see you arrive. Here, let me pour for you. Michiko got her hand over her cup in time to keep it empty, but not in time to stop Chris from pouring. A dribble of plum wine ran over the back of her hand. I'll just have tea, thank you. Chris protested, but she held firm. The things she might say if she got drunk did not bear thinking about, especially since she knew how Bologna would laugh and scorn. That was why Michiko had decided not to tell her about the Golden Lord. It would only be another stick for Bologna to beat her with. You see, this is why ancestral communion is such a burden on your people. You have that man dragging at you like a sky anchor, holding you back, when instead you should be looking ahead to what you might achieve. And Bologna would be right. Even if Michiko ignored her ancestor and looked to the future, other people wouldn't. If they knew she was the Golden Lord's granddaughter, they would question her loyalty to Murtika. After all, she was Kakuten, and everyone knew they honored their ancestors too much to ever go against their wishes. Never mind that most of my ancestors are faithful Murtikan subjects. This one would outweigh them all. Fortunately, Adechike kept the conversation flowing smoothly enough to cover for Michiko's stiffness and Bologna's annoyance. She wondered if he even knew he was doing it, or whether that gregarious warmth was just reflex. Either way, Bologna would misread it. Michiko had assumed this party was the other half of Bologna's plan, building her own network of political connections with the younger generation. And clearly it was, but true to her Murtika nature, Bologna wouldn't be satisfied with that alone. She saw in Adechike a chance to get influence over Coulot, the way Lavinia could never hope to do with Ojo. First a friendship, then an alliance, then conquest. Not with steel, perhaps, but a softer takeover, helping out with Kulo's problems until one day the Kuloi turned around and realized they were thoroughly enmeshed in a Murtikan web. But, for that to work, they needed to be separated from Rumika. Getting Chris alone was nearly impossible, though. They left Adeshike's side willingly enough, trying to resume the conversation with Cassia, or, when that failed, trying to draw Takeshi out of his shell. Watching them, Michiko was reminded of nothing so much as an energetic puppy bouncing all over a startled and affronted cat. But alone? That was another matter. Her opportunity finally came when Chris scrambled out of the nest of cushions, nearly stepping on the hem of their unfolded tail skirt, and drunkenly declaring they needed some tea to counteract the wine or they were going to fall asleep. Dejike offered up the teapot the servers had brought, but Chris said something disjointed about a special tea and wandered out into the Autumn Leaf's main room. Michiko followed. The woman guarding the tea shelves didn't want to give Chris the canister they were pointing at. Shouldn't knows. Shouldn't said they'd have some brought up for the party. Go ask them. 
Looking annoyed, the woman signaled to one of the servers who scurried off. Chris put their back to the counter and saw Michiko. Hi, are you having fun? You don't look like you're having fun. Is it because of the Golden Lord? They shuddered. That was awful. Michiko was beyond tired of people offering her sympathy, whether it was because the Golden Lord had died or because she hadn't gotten the chance to kill him herself. No, I'm just a little tired. Look, Chris. She glanced over her shoulder, making sure no one else from the party had followed them. Don't you find it a little worrying? Chris cocked their head to one side. Find what worrying? This was a gamble, but a calculated one. Judging by the way they'd bounced all over Takeshi and poked at sore spots with Cassia, Chris wasn't the best at reading people's behavior. Adechike, the way he's acting. You mean friendly? With Bologna, Michiko said, letting her tone imply trouble. I know you and Adechike hit it off right away, but now he's turning around and cozying up to her? Bologna was doing most of the cozying, but she was willing to bet Chris hadn't noticed the distinction. Chris shrugged. Why should that worry me? Adechike's friendly, and Bologna's pretty. I'd flirt with her if she'd give me the time of day. They pondered it for a moment. I'd flirt with him, too. Should probably try that first. I have a much better chance there. Michiko ground her teeth in frustration. Whether it was Chris's natural obliviousness or the wine at fault, subtle hints were obviously going to get her nowhere. And if she tried something more blunt, in Chris's current state, they were likely to charge right back into the room and make a public scene. Before she could make up her mind, Shun appeared, wearing an outrageous Hiroki coat cut to emphasize the curve of their hips. What is this about tea? Oh, Chris! They laughed, shaking their head. The canister you want is that one, on the shelf below. Oh. Chris blinked at the tea shelves, then grinned. Can I try the other one, too? Chapter 8. Chris. Morning came far too soon, with far too bright a sun. Chris rolled over and cursed Alex, who had thrown the curtains wide, but the words brought them no pity. Get up. The junior Kakutan warder is here to see you, and it's long past time you got out of bed anyway. Chris's head pounded when they became vertical. There had been way, way too much wine the night before. But Bologna hadn't skimped on the party, and how often did Chris get to drink the good stuff? Michiko grimaced in sympathy when she saw them. I was afraid you might have a rough time of it. I brought you some herbal tea that may help, and then I thought we might go for a walk. In the sun? Chris flinched. You need to steam the fumes out of yourself, she said cheerfully. Where's your teapot? The tea did help. And while the brightness wasn't so great, the fresh air made Chris feel a bit less like the previous night's rancid leftovers. The two of them strolled at a leisurely pace through the parks and broad thoroughfares of the top island, away from the council, past the limestone manners of Toifei's nobility. I wanted to apologize for last night, Michiko said. Chris rubbed the last of the grit from their eyes. Honestly, I don't even remember whatever it is you're apologizing for. She ducked her head. That's why I'm apologizing. I wanted to talk to you about something, but that wasn't the time or place to do it. I just... Well, I wanted to give you a word of warning as a friend. And you think when I'm hungover is a better time? Chris flapped one hand before she could respond. No, no, forget I said that. Warnings are better when they come sooner. What am I being warned about? 
She took a deep breath, then expelled it slowly. Kulo. Huh? Chris stopped in the middle of the street. I've been looking into them since I got here, Michiko said. There are all these wild rumors going around that Kulo has sunk so far that mist fiends are attacking it, or that it's tilted an entire degree out of tune, that sort of thing. But they don't let many foreign ships into port anymore, so we're really just going on what the Kuloi decide to tell us. Chris frowned. You think they're lying about it? Not lying so much as exaggerating, maybe? Countries do it all the time, playing things up or down to benefit their purposes. But what benefit would Kulo get from telling everybody they're sinking? Chris asked, baffled. Michiko spread her hands. Sympathy? And people not thinking of Kulo as a threat? They're still one of the biggest powers in the sky, aren't they? Look, all I'm saying is that we don't know the full story. We know a lot less of it than Ojo and Adejike do, Chris pointed out. I spent time looking into Kulo since I got here, too, except I've done it by actually talking to Kuloi people. Ojo's been really helpful to me, you know. Without him, I'd be a lot more lost here. But that's what worries me, Michiko said earnestly. You're letting Ojo have all this influence over you, over what you know about Toife and how you think about things. I bet he's talked to you about the warders, hasn't he? And told you stories about what they're like. But those are Ojo's stories. You'd get different ones if you talked to Takeshi or Kensuke. Chris's head was throbbing. They were beginning to wish they'd ignored Alex and not gotten out of bed. The words slipped out before they could consider. Yeah, I'd get Murtigan stories. Michiko stiffened at their tone. What do you mean by that? Chris folded their arms. I mean that I'm not so naive that I don't know who the other big power in the sky is. Murtika isn't exactly Rumika's best friend, is it? Not unless they can find some way to use us. They've already swallowed Ikaro and Kakute. They'd love to swallow us next. This isn't about Murtika, isn't it? Chris snorted. Who are you on Toife to represent, anyway? Kakute or Murtika? We're part of the Empire, she shot back. With its own warder. But you take all your orders from Lavinia, don't you? One swift stride brought Michiko right up in Chris's face. If you're so contemptuous of me taking my cues from Lavinia, why are you content to get yours from Ojo? Just because he's nicer? She smiled poisonously. Or because you know you're in over your head. Chris didn't even blink. They just set their hands against Michiko's shoulders and shoved. She staggered back a pace, staring. Chris dropped one hand to their sword hilt. If that's what you think, then I'll be happy to prove you wrong. There was a park across the street with a gardener and two people enjoying the sunshine, now staring at them both. Chris gestured at the park with a jerk of their chin. Nice open area over there. Let's settle this. Michiko stared at them. You want a duel? Why not? I don't have to be a warder to settle a personal matter. Just a duel of blade, not craft. That way we don't put anyone else in danger or tear up that gardener's hard work. I... Chris drew a thumb's length from the sheath. Duel or concede the point. Fine. She bit the word off. Let's duel. Chris had no idea how common personal duels were on Toife, but elsewhere in the sky, even people who weren't blade crafters could settle their disputes with steel. It usually only drew an audience if it got particularly violent, or if the participants were especially good. Or if they were famous. If, say, one of them was the junior Kakutan warder, and the other was challenging to become the first ever warder for Rumika. 
Five people gathered even before Chris and Michiko were done sketching the dueling circle into the ground. It was more a ritual formality than an actual mark, unless they wanted to hack into the smooth carpet of grass. But Chris was determined to observe the forms, even if they would have preferred to curl up on a nearby bench and go back to sleep. At least the enormous ginkgo tree nearby meant the sun wouldn't be sending knives into Chris's eyes while they fought. To the touch, Michiko asked. Chris nodded, stripping off their tail skirt to fight in trousers only. They were pissed, but not so pissed that it justified the two of them carving each other up. They saluted and began. Chris sank into a back-weighted stance lurking out of Michiko's range. For a duel just a blade with no craft involved, the island styles usually had an advantage. Michiko fought in the true way, of course, like a proper imperial puppet. No old way for you, huh? Did the Mertikans outlaw it when they took over? Whether the jibe found its mark or not, Michiko didn't let it visibly ruffle her. She just circled, fainting in and then retreating, and testing the various angles of Chris's defense. Chris hoped their own worry didn't show. They were slower than they should have been, made sluggish by the hangover and lack of sleep, and weariness dragged at every move they made. The longer this went on, the less it was going to favor them. Which meant Chris needed to take control of the tempo. The next time Michiko floated toward them, Chris waded in, slamming forward with a quick movement meant to wrong-foot her. She was off balance for a split second, but Chris wasn't fast enough to exploit it, and then her footwork took her away again. Out of what she thought was Chris's range. Their back leg coiled underneath them, and they lunged. And Chris knew, even as they moved, that it was a mistake, because Michiko was ready for them. All it took was one tiny sidestep and a textbook-cutting parry, and fire burned across Chris's thigh. She retreated fully out of measure without pausing to check her handiwork, and then stopped. Do you concede the touch? With blood staining their leg, they could hardly do otherwise. I do, Chris said through their teeth. They saluted and Michiko returned it, and that quickly the duel was done. Michiko had won. By tradition, it meant Chris had to consider her words about Coulot and the possibility that they weren't as ready as they thought. I'm ready, Chris thought fiercely. When the gauntlet comes, I won't be hung over. But it wouldn't be Michiko they faced, either. She seemed to soften as she looked at them. I'm sorry, Chris, this, it, it was bad timing. I just want you to think twice before you trust people, is all. Chris sheathed their blade and turned to leave. Oh, I will. Born to the Blade is created by Michael R. Underwood. Written by Marie Brennan, Cassandra Kaw, Malka Older, and Michael R. Underwood. Starring Exe Sands. Sound design and editing by Amanda Rose Smith. Theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Original art by Jared Blando. You're listening to Epic, Born to the Blade. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Epic is produced by Nicole Kreuter and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Devin Shepard. 
Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Hosted by Faith McQuinn. Audio editing and original theme by Sam Begala. Original cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Epic by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.